Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup, on-farm research and demonstration with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI's team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials, and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Kim Wolf is a research and development specialist, Hague Resources, with Manitoba Agriculture based in Portage La Prairie. She provides technical support for the research and innovation program in the department, which involves facilitating proposal reviews and helping researchers connect with industry. She has also spent the last five years working on riparian health and pollinator habitat establishment projects at Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives. Kim sits on the MBFI Research Advisory Committee and the Manitoba Pollinator Working Group. Based in Indiana, Stephanie Frischi provides pollinator and beneficial insect habitat expertise in Canada, the U.S., and Latin America for a range of land use types, farm, energy infrastructure, natural areas, and urban green spaces. She also works with the native seed industry and researchers to plan and develop seed supply of important plant species for creating and restoring habitat. Stephanie volunteers as a rare plant monitor with Plants of Concern and is a founding board member of the International Network for Seed-Based Restoration. Welcome to the podcast today, Kim and Stephanie. Thank you both for taking the time to meet with me and being able to do this as one group. We are going to talk in detail about the hows and whys of increasing pollinator habitats shortly. But before we begin, can each of you take a few minutes and just share with me a little bit about your research history and your background? Hi, I'm Stephanie Frischi. I'm an agronomist and native plant materials specialist with the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. And Xerces is a nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon, and focused on invertebrate conservation. I work primarily in habitat, both planning and planting that, as well as developing the native seeds and other plant materials for establishing that habitat. And my path has, has been always finding the overlap and the opportunities for agriculture and conservation to coexist. And I'm Kim Wolf. I'm a research and innovation specialist focused on egg resources. And I work for Manitoba Agriculture based in Portage La Prairie. And so my background, I have a master's in plant ecology from the University of Manitoba, which I got many years ago, but have mainly spent the most of my working career on environmental programs, either focused on producers and now more on researchers. I've become a little bit more involved in the research or demonstration projects when I've been asked to help out with Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives. So that was in 2015. And I've just kind of been filling in that piece for the ecology-related projects for the forum. Perfect. Thank you. Kim, you're working as a research and development specialist with Ag Resources and Manitoba Agriculture. Can you tell me a little bit about what your position entails and what your goals are through this work? Sure. So my main job activities are focused on supporting the research and innovation program that we run through Manitoba Agriculture. Um, so I provide the technical support for the program delivery. I help connect researchers and industry. And the whole goal is to help them get funding to improve and develop new best management practices related to the environment. And the more research there is, the more new better practices are developed. And then producers can adopt these practices and make better decisions related to environment. So that's kind of the gist of it. Great. Stephanie, you work for the Xerces Society. Can you tell me a little bit about your position and what your goals are through this work? 
Yeah, I, I shared my my title is agronomist and native plant materials specialist, but internally we refer to my role as the plant ecologist and specific to the work at in Manitoba with pollinator habitat on farms. We receive funding from General Mills, specifically from their Cheerios brand, to work in areas where oats are grown and engage there with farmers and other groups to help establish and monitor pollinator habitat on those farms. So my role has been doing the outreach for that, coordinating the program overall, providing technical assistance to the farmers in planning and siting, um, developing the seed mix designs, working with the seed companies and the native seed producers to source those seed mixes, and then doing some follow-up trips to help with planting management and monitoring. I am based in the States in Indiana, a bit south between Chicago and Indianapolis. So this is a, a remote project for me. We've worked in Manitoba and Saskatchewan on habitats, as well as North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. So a lot of it has been coordinated remotely, um, even before the pandemic, and with just kind of opportunistic travel to certain key areas over the, the five-year lifespan of our pollinator habitat project. What do each of you find most interesting in your positions? Well, I'll go first. I find just the meeting the different people. And so you get to meet people like Stephanie who are, you know, in the States. We don't normally work with uh, people outside of Canada. So that's interesting, uh, connecting someone like that. And also just all the different researchers that I've been able to just talk to over the past you know, five years across all different areas of research, you know, even from people working on the health, you know, in St. Boniface research, actually, to, you know, people working on grasslands. It's been really interesting. I think similarly for me, I've enjoyed getting to work in Canada and meet the farmers and collaborators like Kim and others that have helped us make that work there possible. I've also worked in pollinator habitat in several locations around North America. So it's also interesting to see some of the same plants, but, you know, in a, a more Northwest part of their native range or the same genera that I'm familiar with from elsewhere and work with different species there. So yes, yeah, it's, it's been a, a very diverse project and I too have enjoyed meeting all the different stakeholders that are involved in it, as well as getting out and seeing the habitats and seeing the, the pollinators and other insects that are using those habitats. And something else that's really been enjoyable for me in this project are the actual farmers that are attracted or interested in establishing pollinator habitat. They're often already doing many other sustainable or regenerative practices related to their cropping systems, rotations, their integrated pest management, and even integrating livestock. And so being able to layer in pollinator habitat is a natural fit for them. And I just I learn a lot from them as well and, and find those conversations really fulfilling and interesting. I was just going to say, I was just going to add, I've also found meeting the producers since I've been working on this particular project. It's been a whole different suite of people I would say. And so meeting the producers that are interested in working on pollinator habitat, it's been really neat to see because I don't see them in my day-to-day -day operation. Stephanie, do you spend much time then talking right to the producers, say, that are involved in the General Mills program? I do. Yeah, we've worked a lot with the different watersheds or conservation district offices to do some of the outreach. But then once I have the contact information for a farmer or vice versa, they get our flyer or hear about our program, they reached out to me. And then you know, before the pandemic, we would just usually set up a phone call or an email to have an, an introductory intake conversation. And then with the pandemic, this was a silver lining. I think many more people got used to video calls. And so we could set up that kind of communication. I would have them share their screen on their internet browser and usually go to something like Google Maps and actually just kind of give me a, a tour of their land. So whether I'm, and then eventually if I'm there in person, it's, it's great to, of course, get to see that. But it's also been a wonderful tool 
to use those video calls and kind of see things aerially from the farm as we talk through the goals and the management practices there. That Google Maps idea is a great idea to get to see who you're dealing with and what their land looks like. That's yeah, brilliant. Yep. Yep. Kim, in your work, are you working right alongside producers or do producers call you with questions and that kind of thing? Or are you more based behind the scenes, I guess, to producers? Yeah, I'm normally a behind the scenes sort of person. I'm specifically with a research program I work on. On occasion, producers, we do have a producer who applied and received funding, but normally it's institutions and, you know, universities, that sort of thing that I'm working with. But so that's why this project was so different for me and getting to see a whole new group of people again. It's really cool. Interesting. Can you tell me if there are projects that are coming up that you know of that are happening in Manitoba or Canadian agriculture that you think our listeners should be aware of as far as work on pollinator strips and increasing those habitats? Our project started in 2017. And so I had a a five-year lifespan. We extended that a bit to accommodate some of the, the lag time we experienced with the pandemic. And while we currently don't have a, a concrete project, I think we're looking at some of our other partners. We have a staff member who's recently relocated uh, to Calgary. So we're hoping to continue building our connections with Canadian partners and working on pollinator habitat and invertebrate conservation in the prairie provinces. So maybe nothing quite in the works yet, but definitely there'll be something, something coming up. I guess either one of you can answer this. Why are we seeing a decline in pollinating insects in the prairie region? And why is this so alarming? Generally, there's four real categories of of threats or the causes that we see behind pollinator decline, and that's loss or degradation of their habitat. So that, that encompasses many factors, but essentially the plants they need to feed on and to feed their young as they're raising them, the overwintering shelter they need to get through that season, and also some of the nesting resources. About 70% of the native bee species in North America are ground nesting bees. So they need intact, undisturbed soil that they can access and, and build those tunnels for their reproductive phase. Roughly 29 or 30% of the bees that use plant stems with pithy or hollow centers or other kind of tunnel-shaped nests in wood or stems. So that's another habitat component. Another large category then is pesticide use. Pesticides are anything that are meant to kill what we consider pests. But of course, they don't always target just those pests. They'll, they'll be collateral damage as well. So pesticides include herbicides. And of course, there are direct and indirect effects of herbicides on pollinators. The direct effects are actually glyphosate, for example, is also has antimicrobial action. So when insects are in, in direct contact with that, it can actually affect their gut microflora. And just just like us, you know, they have beneficial bacteria in their digestive systems. And so exposure to uh, antimicrobial like that can make them sicker or weaker. Herbicide also, of course, is degrading or narrowing the, the plants and the food base that they have. And then, of course, pesticides like insecticides that are really targeted in their chemistry to insects can also kill them or otherwise weaken or sicken them. And then two other big big categories behind the decline are introduced species, and that includes managed pollinators like the European honeybee. Those are, are managed you know, in hives, both for their pollination services as well as for honey and beeswax production. And they can kind of be thought of as insect livestock. So we've got you know, a lot of cattle ranchers listening, and bees are, are kind of an insect version of livestock. So sometimes they're faced with crowded or stressful conditions and they can be a little bit sick and and therefore carry diseases. And then those diseases can also be spread to some of the native wild pollinators. Invasive plant species kind of fits into that same category. And the concern there is that that's eroding or decreasing the biodiversity of food sources in a habitat. And then the the fourth big category is climate change. 
where we just have more extreme weather events, whether that's really dry periods or really wet periods, or also weather that's kind of happening outside of its normal cycles and dates that these insects are accustomed to. A really late freeze might mean that a lot of the, the flowers they're visiting in early spring could just be gone as an example of that. Sounds like there's quite an array of reasons why that, that problem is occurring. I guess we should also talk about, and I don't think I had this in my questions before, but why pollinators are so important, not just to agriculture, but to the ecosystem and the environment as a whole. Pollinators are extremely important to our environment, particularly for food production. They pollinate over 80 to 85% of the world's flowering plants, and two-thirds of this would be the world's crop species. So you think about all the fruits and vegetables that they pollinate, it's incredibly important. In Manitoba, canola is a huge acreage crop, and while honeybees are often situated next to canola crops, native pollinators would also have a huge benefit increasing the yields for those crops. And I think the stat is that one out of every three bites of food that we eat is attributed to pollinators, so they're very, very important. That's a huge amount of food then that is consumed that those pollinators are necessary for. Stephanie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that question? Yeah, that's, that's all really true and highlights the importance of pollinators for us as humans. And I can just also add that, of course, they're part of the bigger fabric of, of wildlife and biodiversity. We've focused a lot, I think, so far in this conversation on bees. But of course, butterflies, moths, beetles, flies, wasps, those are also pollinators. And they're filling a lot of other roles ecologically. Wasps are actually going out and capturing other insects, like sources of meat, so to speak, and feed their, their larvae with those sources. So they're considered a, a beneficial predatory insect that's helpful in managing pest outbreaks. And certainly, you know, flies visit flowers for nectar, but often those larvae are also part of decomposing manure, other waste that's out there. Dung beetles are not considered pollinators. You know, I'm kind of going, going off on a tangent here. But relative to managing grazing lands and pastures, having healthy populations of dung beetles is also important in that, that nutrient cycling and reducing pathogen load by, by breaking down that manure as well. And then all those pollinators are also food sources for so many of the birds that are there breeding in the prairies. I would never have thought that wasps were beneficial for anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there's two specific projects that have been undertaken at MBFI that revolve around pollinators that we're going to chat about today. So Kim, you are the lead on the Operation Pollinator Project. Can you tell our listeners what Operation Pollinator was all about and why those pollinators are so vital to farming operations specifically? So Operation Pollinator was a program from Syngenta Canada, and the goal of that was just to increase the number of pollinating insects on commercial farms. They actually ran a program similar to this in Europe, and it was quite successful, I understand. So they decided to run it in Canada, and I'm just familiar with what the program uh, that ran in the Prairie Provinces. They began in 2018 and ran for three years, I believe. So basically, the gist of the program was they gave producers who were interested uh, a 50-pound bag of seed to use how they wanted on their farm. And so this seed mix was like a one-size-fits-all, I'll call it. The seed mix was the same blend that was distributed to all the farmers that were interested. And it was a blend of non-native annual and perennial plants and one grass species. So it was a mix of clovers, bird's foot trees, foil, Basilia was the annual species and Timothy was the grass. And so they were just encouraged to plant it in areas that weren't currently being used for egg production, such as areas next to ponds or ditches, wetlands or unused field corners. So that was kind of the gist of it. Can you briefly describe how the project was set up and what outcomes you were looking for? So the site we planted had actually been used for storing gravel. It was right along Highway 10, just north of Brandon. So that site was not great condition. It was a mix of bare soil. There was some rome, some different grasses, and some annual weeds. So it was about an acre in size, and so it was quite simple. We just was tilled and harrowed, and then we spread the seed with a broadcast seeder, and that was on the back of a quad. And this was a demonstration project, so only observations were taken. It was kind of just a look-see 
threw the seed down and just looked to see what would happen. And so we just looked to see how the species would establish over the three years and if we noticed pollinators at the site when we went to visit it. And so what we did see was that the species were really quick to grow and we actually did see a large number of pollinators and in particular we did see a lot of honeybees. That's the one insect I can't identify. So we did see a lot of those. There were other pollinators. We did a really small collection one summer. We had some traps out and we did collect some bombus species and a couple others. I'm not an entomologist, so I can't recall exactly, but it was just a really small selection, but there were diverse. You know, we saw 12 different species, you know, on one day. It did work. Were there any unexpected outcomes throughout the timeline of the project? I was a bit worried about establishment since we were broadcasting the seed and the site conditions weren't ideal. So we doubled the seeding rate, which isn't uncommon when you're broadcasting. But the seed was really viable, I'll call it, and the phacelia dominated in the first year. So that annual species just flourished, which was great, but it didn't really allow for a nice blend of other plants to, to grow. Um, and then the second year, the sweet clover in that mix really dominated. So it was more like a crop stand rather than being a plant here and there. So it wasn't what we had actually wanted and it wasn't what the mix was intended for. It did it did flower, it attracted pollinators, you know, the intent of the, the whole program worked. I was hoping for a more even mix of species, but by the third year, we did see more of the smaller clovers show up. I did see pictures of some other sites that were seeded with this mix that were not seeded at a double rate, and they, they worked out better, and they looked really nice. They were in a nice blend with all species present in all years. So seeding rate is very important. That's a really good observation to make and a good point to share, I think, with producers if they're looking at planting some of those. Do you think that that blend would be beneficial to you, say, in saline areas or like those patches that just don't grow anything else? We did put the seed down on one of the riparian areas on a wetland at MBFI. It was quite saline. It had been pretty dominated by foxtail barley. It grew patchy at best, but some species did grow, but the foxtail barley did just come back and dominate. So it isn't the best for a real true saline area. Probably a, a perennial mix would work better of native plants. I would recommend for there or something more suited for saline sites. And Stephanie, you were a collaborator on the Cows and Bees Project, which is also known as using novel seed mix to rejuvenate tame pastures and create pollinator habitat that occurred at MBFI. Can you share some information on this project and how it was implemented? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. This is really a project that Kim led and she invited me to participate. So I'll, I'll kind of lay things out as best as I can here and then we'll have Kim kind of fill in. But these were some paddocks outside of a Brandon that had become more dominated with a few grass species. So their value as forage for cattle was a lot lower. And this project really aimed at looking at how could we suppress those grasses and then intercede some plant species that would be good forage for the cattle as well as good forage for pollinators. So there were myself at the time, this is a few years ago, but I recall May Elsinger from Ag and Agri-Food Canada was also involved in planning the experimental design for this, as well as the, the seed mixes that we would use. So there were two suppression treatments as well as a control. And one was the herbicide suppression. The other was a, like intensive grazing. And then there were two seeding treatments. One was with a seed drill and the other was a mob seeding. The seed was broadcast first in that case. And then the cattle were put in on top of it, just worked the seed in into that turf and thatch with their hooves. So um, that was kind of the the design and the plan for the project. Through our General Mills project, we provided the seed mix for that. And that also was a mixture. There were some tame species, there was buckwheat in there, and I think red clover, white clover, if I recall correctly. And then we also had some native species that came from Skinner native seeds up in Roblin. The a perennial sunflower, there also was purple prairie clover in that mix. And I'll let him kind of take it from there and talk about more details and some of the results. 
Yeah, so the whole idea was that when I learned about the Operation Pollinator program, it was for crop producers generally, like for areas that were like not being cropped. So I wondered if there was something available for livestock producers, and I really couldn't find anything. And then I saw the program being offered by uh, Xerce Society, General Mills, and contacted Stephanie, and she was open to just trying something, you know, kind of crazy. <laughs> so I don't think this is a real uh, normal project, I'll say. So yeah, we just went from there, designed the project that she said with help from May. And yeah, so with that seed blend, she's pretty much nailed everything. There was alfalfa in there as well, some sandpoint, and some goldenrod. So it was really, there was a lot of species, about a dozen different plants. So we were just trying, trying it out, seeing how it worked. And can you speak to what the goals of the project were? I'm sure. Like the whole point was just to try and increase the species diversity of the pasture to improve pollinator benefits, but to, to not impact forage quality. So are planting flowers in a grazing situation going to reduce the quality and just wanted to see how it worked. I'll add too that this was really an applied kind of research question. The, the idea was that if there was a producer that was in a similar scenario with, with their pasture, like what techniques would be recommended for them to use to enrich that pollinator value and add a, add a few more legumes for the cattle as well? Thank you. What were the outcomes of the project or were there any unexpected outcomes throughout the time frame of the project? So basically, after the three years, we had a drought, a severe drought in that third year. So they're really, I will call it, it was a wash. There was not much to look at there. But after two years, definitely the chemical suppression treatment worked the best and the broadcast and drill worked okay. The, the drill seeded sites did work a bit better. So if someone were to want to re- replicate it or try it on their farm, that's what I would recommend is to use chemical suppression and then to drill seed again. That's like the bottom line after all those all that work we did. And in terms of the forage quality, we really didn't see any impact. Like we didn't have a huge flush of flowers anywhere, so it really didn't impact forage quality. Perfect. And Stephanie, do you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, given that this was a relatively small and, and focused experiment or, or project, there are still some lessons from it that can be used for larger habitat projects. And that's just that that site history on what might be there before and therefore potentially exist as a weed, you know, after try to, to do add more pollinator plants in there through a seed mix, that's really important to familiarize yourself with ahead of time and look at the different options for suppressing that and then not not get too impatient or ahead of yourself about putting down the seed mix because once you've made that investment in in the cost and that operation, then you you can't just kind of non-specifically apply any kind of herbicide or mowing or grazing You've got to try to co-manage the plants that you want with the ones that may be less desirable. So I think, you know, that's a, a good lesson. It's just keep site prep and then the post-seeding vegetation management in mind. And then, you know, the weather. The weather is always this wild card where you can plan and prepare as much as possible. But then you get this this really dry period. I think we did have some seedlings had germinated, but then I think, am I right, Kim? The, the first year after planting also was really dry and there was actually like very little growth that happened then. So I think there may have been a, a second seeding pass that was done. Yeah, we tried this uh, experiment on one paddock and then it, we had no moisture in the spring, like nothing could get established. So then I had seed left over and I thought, well, there was a paddock right next to it. Let's just do it again. And so we just replicated the same experiment on the paddock right next door to it, I'll say. And we added the buckwheat. We added the annual in there, which we didn't have in the first seeding pass, the first uh, year of the project. So we added buckwheat as an annual just to see what that would happen. And so we did see that buckwheat get established. And we saw it everywhere. In every plot, the buckwheat was there for about two months and then it just fizzled out. 
So I don't know if it was just couldn't compete. It's not a real strong competitor. So it just fizzled out. One thing that was sort of interesting is that their alfalfa really seemed to enjoy this project. It just took off. Like there was a bit of alfalfa, legacy alfalfa in, in that pasture, but after year two, there was quite a bit more. If there's listeners who are listening to this and they're interested in seeding some of these pollinator strips and habitats, can they seed it in the spring and in the fall as long as they're seeding it early enough in the fall? Or is this something that you could only seed in the spring? So the the season for seeding, yeah, it, it varies kind of depending on which species are in that seed blend. And I think the individual producer's knowledge of their, their climate and, and their land and their goals. So typically you think of spring as the time for planting seeds. That's the beginning of the growing season. And for most of the tame species that we've worked with in these pollinator habitat seed blends, that's the optimal time for seeding. A few producers have opted to, to seed those in the fall or late summer, you know, but again, you need kind of enough window still remaining in the growing season and need to choose species that are going to be hardy as little seedlings in those colder months of October. And then as winter sets in after that, but then with the native species, we've tried a few things. If you think about the, the life cycle of these prairie wildflowers, they're blooming and going to seed. And then by late summer or autumn, or some of them even earlier, they bloom and go to seed earlier. Those seeds disperse and are on the ground uh, at the beginning of winter. They go through winter and that exposure to the cold temperatures and the moisture actually is a signal to the seed that winter has happened, but now spring is coming. So it's going to be safe um, to germinate. We tried to recommend and encourage producers to seed those native species in the fall, but I understand it's kind of like a 180 degree turn from the normal mindset of when is the right time to seed things. But that dormant seeding can be really helpful. And then those seeds have a bit of a jump start in the spring. You know, if it's if there's good moisture really early on, they're able to take that up and, and get started earlier. They're certainly really adapted to those cooler temperatures for that. This whole question of when to plant the seeds becomes a little trickier is if you're doing one of these mixes that has both the tame species and the native in there. That's something where, you know, you usually don't want to plant one and then six months later go back and plant over it with the second one. There's a producer that I'm working with in Saskatchewan right now, and I think it has both tame and native species, and that one we're going to opt to, to plant in the spring. Yeah, so some of those natives may even remain dormant that first summer until they experience their first winter and then like the following spring. And that growing season is, is when a lot of the establishment would happen. That's interesting. It would be kind of neat to follow up on that and see what you find out with that project later on. Sure. Kim, can you just share why all of this is relevant to farmers and what implications this can have for the land that they farm? Sure. Producers are stewards of large areas of land. And as an industry, as an agriculture industry, we need to increase public trust. So this is this type of practice is a huge opportunity to not only increase pollinator habitat, pollinator resources, but also build public trust. I'm hoping that this will become more commonplace and more taken up, adopted by producers. And also programs. If there were a few more programs available, BMP programs or ecological goods and services type programs that would help compensate producers to get these going and off the ground because it can be expensive. The seed can be very expensive and there's really no monetary benefit to the producer. It's all doing good, helping the environment and pollinators. I, I think that's my perspective also is, is that producers live off of that land. That's their livelihood and caring for that is key. And Managing things so intensively or as systems that only have a few plant and animal species in them, that can only go so far. You know, you have to keep putting in inputs and putting in inputs, and that's just not indefinitely sustainable. So managing things more holistically, and that includes incorporating things like, we call it pollinator habitat, right? But it's usually a diverse mix of perennial and annual plants. So you have 
more consistent and continuous cover in the soil, you're protecting it from erosion. You're not depleting organic matter. You're actually actively building it up. Um, it's also a place where maybe there are parts of a particular farm or land that are less naturally productive from a livestock or cropping perspective, whether they're those saline areas or their sloughs or wet areas or their hills or their you know, odd corners. It's hard to get equipment in. Those are other great opportunities to manage as pollinator and wildlife habitat as well. Just thinking in my head about people that use pivots and all of the corners that that those don't get to and how nice it would be to see this kind of thing planted in those. Uh Right. If producers are looking to increase pollinator habitats on their operations, We've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but are there specific areas that you would recommend for them to focus on to start um, or areas that you're seeing that are more beneficial towards pollinator populations than other areas of the farm? Well, like Stephanie alluded to, probably those areas that aren't you know, agriculturally productive would be a great place to start. Keeping in mind that if there are plants there already that are, and especially if there are native plants, I wouldn't tell them up to go and plant in a new seeding mix so you know leave the natural areas natural but if there's something that you're trying to you know grow a crop on and it's not working that would be kind of the low-hanging fruit to start with some of the I mean I said farmers a lot earlier and I'm, I'm in as a bigger umbrella to in, include producers and those who are raising cattle or or bison as well several of the participants in our program were, were grazing their pollinator habitat but they were doing it with really light stocking rates and short durations. These native prairie plants, they've been subject to grazing thousands of years and are adapted to that under reasonable pressure. So they can be grazed down and then allowed to rest and grow back. And that was another way of managing for pollinator habitat as well. So there would be different paddocks that had been rested from grazing and those were blooming. These plants had grown back and were providing pollen and nectar for pollinators. And maybe 30 days later, that would come through and be grazed. So there was always this range of plants in different stages of flowering, you know, under that kind of, of grazing rotation. You know, on our farm, we have a strip that's planted around the outside of an entire field. And the thought was that using that would not only increase the beneficial insects, but that it might stop some of those non-beneficial insects from getting into the field and causing damage. Is there scientific evidence behind that that would support that idea? I mean, it's, it's kind of a logical place to put this linear strip of perennial pollinator habitat on the edges of fields, and you can certainly get some benefits. I mean, there's good research from canola that actually shows not just strips on the edge, but canola is the crop where yield depends on pollination. Right. So I'm not going to quote the figures because I don't remember them off the top of my head, but you could actually dedicate a certain percentage of the field to pollinator habitat. And even though then you'd reduce the total acreage of the field, the yield was actually higher because you got that pollination service benefit by embedding pollinator habitat, um, you know, in a couple squares throughout the larger field. But then the flip side of that is like what I talked about before, when insecticides are used in a a field or an area, you're really creating an ecological sink, right? A place that draws in or attracts pollinators, but then exposes them to something deadly like an insecticide application. So when we do habitat planning with producers, that pesticide risk mitigation and assessment is really an important Part of that is learning what are the pest pressures, what are the ways that pests are managed through practices, including chemical means on a farm. So learning that background, learning what the goals of the producer are, where they're able to reduce that or change some of those practices, and then also choosing the location where pollinator habitat will be to best protect it from that risk of insecticide or pesticide exposure. To your question, Chantel, about keeping out the non-desirable insects, I don't think these strips really act as a physical barrier of any kind, but I mentioned before they're great for pollinators, but pollinators serve other roles 
in ecosystems beyond just pollinating. So you get some of that natural pest control through some of the insects that also find the pollinator habitat suitable, but they're actually going out and hunting some of those. There's, it's called beetle banking, and that's where you'd use something like bunch grasses mixed in with these wildflowers. And the structure at the base of those bunch grasses is a, a place that predatory ground beetles really find as their habitat. So these beetles might be in this habitat as well, but then they move out into crop fields and are doing some natural pest control that way as well. So not so much, they don't serve so much as a, a, a barrier, but again, they're a source for more of this kind of complete ecological network to function alongside the agricultural production. Perfect. Thank you. We kind of already answered the next one on how producers can use pollinator strips or plots in their operations to help increase the number of pollinator insects. But is there anything else that you want to add to that before we move on? Yes. One thing I thought of was shelter belts can also be very important for pollinators. You know, spruce trees aren't going to have a lot of pollinating benefits, but one of the projects I did at MBFI was eco buffers. And essentially is just trying to replicate a natural forest situation or, you know, was with a mix of trees and shrubs and you could even throw like a pollinator mix in there while those trees and shrubs are getting established so i think that would be another way that they could do it is if they're planting a shelter belt they could use you know saskatoons or some cherry species or something like that something that would flower and fruit and then also throw some pollinator seed down while they're planting their trees at the same time you know some basilia something annual or some native plants that would be great and at a little cost, but might keep their maintenance down later down the road. But, you know, while those shrubs and trees are growing, be something that's also providing some habitat. That's a great idea. Stephanie, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great example too, Kim. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I'll just mention willows. Willows are another tree and shrub species. There's many native species you can choose from as well as some non-native ones, but surprisingly, they're actually great for pollinators also, especially, you know, early in the spring, they bloom so early. So as pollinators are coming out of overwintering, willows can be a great food source for them, as well as they feed a lot of different caterpillar species and then do all those other good things that shelter belts do, you know, in terms of protecting from wind erosion and providing a little bit of shade as well. I will give a shout out to the provincial government for planting eco buffer along Highway 1. Their Trans Canada Shelter Belt, they're starting to use the eco buffer design. It's a two row, it's kind of a simple design, but it's multi species and it's so great. I'm so happy they did that. Yeah, departments of transportation can also work to use that land for pollinator habitat as well. I haven't been past there in months, so I'll have to take a look at them the next time I go past. What kind of maintenance do these plots require on an annual basis? Well, the Operation Pollinator mix, we didn't do anything. We just threw it down. And because of that seed selection, it was tame species. Those really grew. You don't really have to do anything. So that we just threw down and let it grow and never touched it again. For the native plants, those are a little more high maintenance, depending on what's going on with them and what kind of situation they're in. I don't have a ton of experience with that, but with our Cows and Bees project, they were grazed in oh, July, like, you know, when it was high productivity time. And then again in the fall. So that was the only maintenance that was done on those. Otherwise, you know, other sites that are seeded like a solid native blend, I'll let Stephanie address. But uh, for this project, that was the only maintenance that occurred. And I think I've, I've touched on this a little bit, you know, in answering some of the earlier questions, but for the habitat that's created primarily with native species. These are perennials. They're adapted to prairie conditions and they really are able to survive. Things like a grazing, um, natural fire and drought by having deep and extensive root systems. So that's their real lifeline. So yeah, again, kind of patience is the key here. These are not crop plants. They're not gonna germinate the second that water hits them. And they're also maybe not going to produce a lot of biomass in the first few years that's above ground. They're producing biomass underground to really build that safety net. So 
just managing with that in mind, watching for weeds that are going to be problematic. There might be a lot of annual weeds that come up and you can do um, mowing a few times during the growing season as high of a height as you can. You don't wanna let too much growth happen and then mow it and put all this thatch down that both smothers and shades out those seedlings that are trying to grow. So finding a balance between preventing too much annual weed growth or preventing those annual weeds from going to seed by strategically timed mowing um, is some important management that can happen. And then scouting for other perennial weeds, you know, that may be occurring and, and figuring out what's appropriate to, to manage those, whether that's mowing or grazing or, you know, a possible chemical treatment as well. Often these are prairies or grasslands. They're open, sunny kinds of habitats that a lot of these pollinator habitats, the, the plants in them. So over time, over years, you know, preventing them be from becoming too shaded by trees or woody species if, if you want to keep them you know, as an open grassland kind of habitat. Is there anything else that either one of you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap up today? I think I would just, you know, encourage producers and all that just to think about how they can increase or incorporate pollinator habitat, just any native plants on their property. It could be in a garden or like in my yard, I incorporated clovers into my lawn. So something like that, it's a small thing you can do. And then leaving natural areas alone. <laughs> That's my big thing. Just if it's good, just leave it. Don't, you know, it's such a neat thing to see native plants growing on property. I, I love it. Yeah, I think that's so important, Kim. You know, I, I have uh, I've worked for most of my career in ecological restoration and interfacing with agroecology. And as much as we are learning about how to use these native seed mixes and manage them, a restoration or a planted habitat is not the same as unbroken prairie. That's such a unique ecosystem, both underground and above ground. So yes, I'd encourage everyone to learn more about what their native grasses and native plants are in their pasture or on their farms and learn to really appreciate those and, and protect those as well. And also I'm a, a plant ecologist who works for an invertebrate conservation organization and learning and just stopping to observe the insects that are on your plants can just really be eye-opening as far as all this kind of micro wildlife that's there be in your, your garden, your farm, or in larger pieces of land too. If listeners want to find out more information about pollinators and pollinator habitats, what is the best way to contact each of you? So for me, Kim, you can email me at kim.wolf, that's K-I-M dot W-O-L-F-E at gov.mb.ca, gov.mb.ca. Or you could go to the Manitoba Beef and Forage website to get the reports on the projects I did. And I also did a poster of the Cows and Bees project. And so that can be made available. Perfect. And Stephanie, can we get some of your contact information as well? I can be reached at my email address, which is Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot Frischi, F-R-I-S-C-H-I-E at Xerces, X-E-R-C-E-S. .org, and our website is also xerces.org. And I have a, a couple of resources that I want to mention also. Xerces has a huge digital library of technical information, and it's all available for free downloads from our website. One is called Rangeland Management and Pollinators, a guide for producers in the Great Plains. So I have several colleagues of mine who are specialists in rangeland management and pollinator conservation. And they're the authors uh, of this publication, six or eight pages long. So that's real handy. We'll send the link for that. And then those same colleagues have been working on a forage quality study where they're looking at many, many of our native plant species and having those analyzed for their nutritional content, kind of rating them for their forage value. and that is going to be coming out, I believe, in 2023. And I think that's going to be a wonderful tool for both 
producers and other folks who advise on pasture management. Some of these species, we just think, oh, that's a weed, you know, <laughs> or my, my cattle don't eat that, or I don't want to plant that for whatever reason. So I'm really excited to have this come out and be able to learn like about some of the, the nutritional value of these plants and how that can be incorporated into cattle production also. Great. And we will make sure that both of your emails, the websites and the links to those publications are included in the show notes. And each of these projects that we've talked about today does have a full report on MBFI's website, um, as Kim had mentioned, that has information on how it was set up, on the outcomes and any other information that are given for that project. So I'll also stick the links for those into the show notes as well. And if there's listeners who want more information, they can take a few minutes to check those out. Thank you both so much for taking your time today to join me on the podcast. I think there's a lot of really great information that you have both shared. And it's something that is just so important for our producers to be thinking about and trying to implement on their operation. So thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about pollinators and pollinator habitat and how producers can work to support um, all those plants and animals on their farms as well. Thank you. You're welcome. On the MBFI website, you can find out more information about each of the projects we've talked about today, including how it was set up, the outcomes of the project, and any other information that's related to that project. I will include the link for each of those projects in the show notes. Or you can view them by going to MBFI's website, www.mbfi.ca. And we would like to send a huge thank you to all of the project funders and supporters for this project, Syngenta Seeds, Xerces Society, and a very big thank you to May Elsinger for her advisory role in the Cows and Bees project. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.